Yes, racism yet exists today, 57 years later after Emmett's death, especially through police brutality. Police officers all over the country, they're the new Ku Klux Klan. That's Erica Gordon-Taylor, a cousin of Emmett Till. Gordon-Taylor was a racial justice activist and director of the Mamie Till Mobley Memorial Foundation. And she's one of hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who died of COVID-19 in 2020. They patrol our communities and treat us like criminals. We yet see it reflected through the images of victims such as Rakia Boyd, Stefan Watts, also killed in his home, James Rivera, Alan Bluford, Howard Morgan, Ricky Bradley, Ramarley Graham, Darren Hanna, Amadou Diallo, Sean Bell, and Trayvon Martin, amongst hundreds of others across the country. We mustn't forget them. They're the victims of this war. They are the catalyst for the new civil rights movement. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. Usually at this time of year, we bring you our Fallen Heroes episode, telling the stories of lesser-known local organizers and activists who passed away during the year. But 2020 was unique, so we're changing it up a little bit. In the first half of the show, we'll hear stories of people who died at the hands of law enforcement. And in the second half, we'll hear about the lives and work of activists who died after contracting the coronavirus. These twin plagues have taken down so many of our community members, further revealing the fault lines of race, class, and identity that permeate our lives. So for 2020, we present The Fallen. What's going on? My name is Yane Indigo. I am a core organizer with Black Lives Matter Philly, and I am also a founding organizer with the Ubuntu Build Freedom Project. On October 26th of this year, there was a family, the Wallace family, who had a member, Walter Jr., who was in distress and called 911 in order to receive help and support in addressing the situation. There were multiple times that the police were called that day during Walt's mental health crises. And the third time that the police came, there were two officers who apparently had not been informed of the previous incidents who came upon the scene immediately drew weapons on Walt. And while he was about 15 feet away, they opened fire on him because he had a knife in his hand. Put it down! Put the knife down! Put the knife down! One thing that people who watch that video may not be aware of is people see him as he was actually approaching the officers because the officers were between him and his parents' home. So he wasn't even actually affronting the officers. He was just moving somewhat in their direction. But there was just no attempt made to disarm him. The community had a, a very immediate reaction because people saw the video. We saw yet another black person murdered by police. We saw that it was preventable. And so everyone rallied and went right 
to the neighborhood where all of this happened. The need for help for Walt started before that day because Walt has mental health issues and those kinds of concerns and the ability to address and have resources to address those kinds of concerns are not readily found in poorer black communities. So what really should have happened is that the family should have had someone that they could turn to and trust, that they could go to for ongoing support on how to address the problems, how to support him, how he can support himself, that how they can put together a care plan that will actually work for him and how members of the community can be involved in supporting that care plan and understanding that care plan. Those two individual officers are not the problem. They were looking for mental health support, and so mental health professionals would have been more appropriate. We are not going to be safe until we have some new kinds of systems of safety built. And so we want the full abolishing of the police, but not immediate. We want to do that over time where we can be taking resources from the police. And as we defund the police, we begin to resource programs that actually prevent violence because police does not actually prevent violence. The police respond to violence and respond to crime, but there are actions, activities around building up communities that actually prevent violence and prevent crime. And then we can have a small team of people who can be trained to respond to things that are more aggressive that may be happening in the community, which would be minimal and under circumstances where a community is well-serviced and well-resourced. That's why you find that there are less crime in wealthier communities because those communities are secure and well-resourced. And so if we resource our communities, then we won't need those kinds of military occupations that police provide. My name is Carlos Montes, a community organizer in Boyle Heights, Southern California. I'm a member of Centro CSO Community Service Organization and we work and organize with families fighting against police killings and advocate for public education and immigration reform. And one of many cases that, that have occurred in the recent uh, years of the LA County Sheriff's killing our young black and Latino men. Andres Guardado, 18 year old, working as a uh, informal uh, guard at a uh, auto body shop in Gardena he was killed on June the 18th, 2020, by the LA County Sheriff's out of the Compton Station, which is notorious for other controversial killings. The poor young man, uh, man, was shot five times in the back. The community rose up. They did a car caravan protest. There was mass protests and marches, and uh, the sheriffs came out, tear gas people, arrested people, shot rubber bullets. And this was in addition to all the protests we were having downtown LA at the district attorney's office, at the LEPD headquarters, at the East LA Sheriff's Station. You know, there were protests all over the county of LA against the sheriff and the LEPD. 
and all against police killings and all expressing solidarity with black and brown communities. Black and brown, shut it down! Black and brown, shut it down! Black and brown, shut it down! We've attacked this problem on several fronts, right? And we've protested and rallied, marched at, at the different stations, but in working and uniting with Black Lives Matter LA for the last three years, we've been demanding that the district attorney prosecute these cops, investigating them. Her name is Jackie Lacey, right? We did petitions, call-ins, walk-ins to her office. We called for meetings. She refused to meet with us eventually. So finally, the demand was Jackie Lacey must go. Former DA San Francisco George Gascon ran against her. So PLMLA uh, decided to do a full campaign to get the vote out. They didn't endorse Gascon directly, but we just say Jackie Lacey must go. Every time we would have a rally at the GA Jackie Lacey's office, we would ask people to bring their mailing ballots, and we would walk to a local balloting place and deliver them in person. And we got a lot of young black and Latino and white people to vote finally, who a lot of folks are giving up on voting that it doesn't work. George Gascon won. We had a meeting with him after the election where he committed to not push the death penalty. He's also going to eliminate the gang enhancement. He's going to eliminate the juveniles be transferred to adult court, adult jail. And he's also committed to investigate police killings. I have already pledged to reopen four of dozens of fatal officer-involved shootings we review. I am convening a use of force review board and they will make recommendations to my office as to which additional cases need to be reopened. And I feel optimistic, you know, and I've been around for 50 years, you know. I feel optimistic that uh, things are going to change. We got rid of Jackie Lacey. That was a big victory, you know, for the community. I think that's a big victory nationally, really, that we got rid of a, a sitting DA who got the support, millions of dollars from the Police Protective League, from the Association of District Attorneys, and also from the Deputy Sheriff Union, they pumped in millions of dollars to support her and we defeated them. My name is Melanie Yazi. I'm an assistant professor of Native American Studies and American Studies at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm also a co-founder and an organizer with a grassroots indigenous organization called the Red Nation. A lot of our politics, radical politics around police brutality, often center on indigenous or native people, on uh, the Hispanic community, right, and on the migrant community. And so when Valencia Costa Bustillos was murdered, APD had gone in to Valente's home for a welfare check. This is actually a pretty common scenario for cop killings um, of civilians. Sí. 
He lived in a neighborhood that is already heavily policed in a city. I think it was in 2013 and 2014, possibly 2015. The APD had killed people at a higher rate that per capita than any other city in the United States. And so the relationship with police in Albuquerque is incredibly tense. It always has been. Police rush into the home. You can see laser lights from the tasers pointed at him. And Acosta Bustillas raises a shovel toward the cops. One officer fires a taser, the other fires shot. Back up. Back up, you're going to be tased. Put it down, you're going to be tased. Part of the reason why there wasn't more of a public response or people taking to the streets was because of the pandemic. In March, it was just kind of emerging. I think people were possibly afraid to congregate, you know, in large numbers in the streets. Of course, that changed two months later with the, the major uprising of the summer following George Floyd's murder in late May. His family members led the protest holding up a sign with his name, eventually ending with a vigil right outside the home Acosta Bustillos once lived in. I called APD to check on my father. The biggest mistake that I ever made. Arguing about like the semantics of like, did this person have a weapon or did this person not have a weapon? Where I'm at now in my understanding of policing is it's a bit irrelevant because when you're asking those questions, you're actually thinking like a cop. Right? You're thinking like a cop when you're asking a question about threat. It's that like everyone's an enemy. And so how do we think about policing by not employing cop logic, right? But by trying to employ, let's say, abolitionist logic and to try to think about policing from a very different perspective. And so, you know, the conversation about abolition has become much more mainstream, I would say, um, in the last months after George Floyd's murder. And I think moving forward into 2021, we're going to see people continue to double down on changing the way that we understand this, on actually making real demands. You're listening to Making Contact. To make sure you don't miss out on new shows and behind-the-scenes information, go to radioproject.org. Now we return to The Fallen of 2020 with stories of just a few of the important organizers and activists who passed away this year from COVID-19. My name is Cristina Herrera, and I'm the founder and CEO of Trans Latinx Network. Lorena Borjas was a trans Latina from Mexico. I met Lorena Borjas back in 1987. I was uh, 17 years old then. We were by uh, Port Authority in New York City. We were just hanging out, trying to find community. Back in the 80s in general, the transgender community didn't have uh, many places to go and to feel safe. Bueno, la razón que yo llegué a este país eh... I came to this country when I was very young, 20 years old, because I didn't have a future in Mexico, as at the time, I considered myself a gay man. My plan was to transition from a man to a woman. In 1990, I was arrested for prostitution and human trafficking, but the charges were false. I was actually the victim. Lorena, you know, was a long-term survivor of HIV. She was diagnosed in the beginning of the 80s. 
Lorena stayed focused and continued to study. She um, continued to make a lot of friends at different places. She was able to really talk about the translating experience and the challenges that we face. So people really like gravitated towards her, especially like providers, like lawyers and politicians. So, you know, she spoke to those leaders, those networks of people that wanted to help the community. And then uh, she advocated for a community in the early 90s to get access to medical services. Back then, many of us in the community, we were accessing black market hormones. Hasta en el año de 1995, que decidí yo emprender un camino como activista. In 1995, I decided to become an activist. To change police policies and systems, I organized my first trans march as a trans woman. My mission led me to create an organization that now has 479 trans women registered as members. But it started out focused on helping trans women living with HIV or AIDS and being arrested. Pero mi enfoque sí empezó ayudando a las mujeres trans que viven con VIH/SIDA y siendo arrestadas. The Lorena Warhouse Community Fund was a program that she created to uh, interrupt the process of uh, community members who were being put into the criminal justice system. So through that fund, we were able to pay, you know, like bail for community members so that they wouldn't go through the process and where ICE immigration can step in and put holders, you know, immigration holds on them and start to process them for removal proceedings. So through Lorena's work, uh, many community members were able to get their records, you know, cleaned and stuff. And some of those community members had also been uh, victims of trafficking. Seeing them happy is the goal. Seeing them obtain a work permit, seeing them in a complete transition, having access to proper medical care, and making sure they're getting their hormonal treatment supervised by a doctor. De hormonas supervisadas por un doctor. She served as a model to other providers who wanted to, you know, learn how to better work with the transgender community, the transgender immigrant community. She started a, a, a center which was a Centro Intercultural Transgrediendo for it to be a more holistic institution where individuals were going to get their prevention needs met through groups and education and empowerment. But she also wanted through that center to have a more robust immigration and legal services for our community. She had already secured a space in Jackson Heights. She was also doing a national work to provide capacity to other translator organizations around the country. I consider myself the luckiest trans woman that doesn't have to wake up in the morning and prostitute herself. As the pandemic started, I feel that, you know, Lorena continued to meet the needs of the community. I think she probably assumed that it was like a cold, like she got sick with the flu and then everything happened fast because it was about a three to four week um, ordeal for her. I feel that as we live our lives, as we celebrate who we are and as we challenge those systems that have historically oppressed us, we're honoring her because we're not giving up. 
everything that she wanted was for us is to continue to live our life to the fullest and make the lives of the future community members a little bit better. Pamela Rush is an activist that everybody should know. Reverend Barber has termed her the Fannie Lou Hamer of poverty. Hi, my name is Pamela Rush. I'm from Lowndes County, Alabama. And I live in a mobile home with my two kids. My name is Katherine Coleman Flowers, and my work has been around water and sanitation issues, in particular sanitation issues at the intersection of climate change and poverty. And the COVID pandemic has really magnified the problems that exist around all of these issues that I work at the intersection of. One of the glaring examples of all of these intersections happened with Pamela Rush. Pamela was, um, at the time she passed away from COVID on July 3rd, had become a national spokesperson for the New Poor People's Campaign. And a lot of people knew who she was because Senator Bernie Sanders, during his presidential campaign, actually came to visit with her. My mama also lived in the mobile home, too. In the wintertime, it gets so cold. And my mama caught pneumonia in this trailer, and she died from it. I know I need me somewhere else to stay. These people did us wrong about charging us all the money for the mobile home. $114,000. And I just still owe 15000 It ain't worth it. You know, when we use the expression that it is very expensive to be poor, this is what we're talking about. The house was full of mold and mildew. Her daughter was about 10, was sleeping on, with a CPAP machine. She was straight piping. There was a fluent from when she flushed her toilet, it went out on top of the ground right behind her house. All of these conditions helped to make Pamela very, very vulnerable to other kinds of externalities that would happen that she had no control over. Initially, she didn't see herself as an activist. She was just telling her story of hopes that somebody would help her and her children. But as time went on, I think one of the transitional points for her was going to Washington and testifying before Congress. And then all Alma coming in my house. Possum, that trap, uh, four possum in my house, cats and stuff. And I got raw sewage. I don't have no no money on pop. Mm-hmm. And I had to travel back and forth to Birmingham to f- take my daughter with the CPAP machine. Don't have my car and don't have no way to take her. And then we have a high utility bill. And I, pay, I was paying like $370 a month on the trailer. And, and I have uh, like $270 like the and 300 something like in the summertime. She started to realize that telling her story was going to have an impact on other people who are living in poverty around the United States. If you go into the Central Valley, you'll find Pamela's. You know, if you go into Alaska, you're going to find Pamela. You'll find them in Hawaii. You'll find them in Puerto Rico. They're all over this country. The question is, is do we have the moral fortitude to change this? My 
My name is Jeff Waka, and Gary Bowie was my husband for 20 years. Gary was the executive director of Being Live Los Angeles and was known throughout the community as a strong advocate for the HIV community. Uh, also, he worked with uh, the homeless populations, the trans populations, uh, as well as those that were in recovery. We are finally seeing the rate of new HIV infections dropping, but we must be vigilant. And that means challenging everyone to do their part to help us reach HIV zero by the year 2022 in Los Angeles County and by 2025 in the nation. Once Gary found out that he was HIV positive in 1984, you know, he went through the normal thing that most people do was you know, the depression, that this was the end of life pretty much because back in 84, it was a death sentence. But he quickly got out of that because that was his nature. And soon his mother and he were driving to Mexico to buy AZT and smuggle it back into the United States so he could distribute it to friends and people that needed it. Because at that time, it was hard to get and it was expensive and a lot of insurance companies weren't covering it yet. When I began this journey myself, I had my own coping methods. I lost nearly every single friend to HIV and AIDS in the early days. I'm gonna tell you, attitude and outlook was part of my strategy to staying healthy. But volunteering was also an important part to make sure I was in this fight. Didn't matter if it was nine o'clock at night or two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, he'd get on the phone and he would talk these people through their diagnosis and what they needed to do next and give them hope. He would help them get housing, help them get food. It was more than once I would get a phone call from him at work going, um, I hope you don't mind, but one of my clients is on the street and I need to get him off. So is it okay if he stays in the guest room for a few days? For many people, communities of disparities, communities of color, those who are in socioeconomically poor communities, getting care is not simply going to the doctor and taking an HIV pill. For a large percent of our HIV community, barriers to care is not medicine, but rather housing, food, mental health, transportation, and so much more. Let us take a moment to walk in their shoes. Let's check our privileges and have the compassion and empathy to meet them where they're at. Gary was one of the first to realize that HIV and AIDS care was changing and that the agencies needed to change along with it or they would go out of business. His quarrel, so to speak, with some of the agencies is that they were in the business of taking care of sick people. And that's the business they wanted to be in because it was profitable. Gary's mission was to get these people healthy and help them maintain their health. The agency would teach them about self-care, they would do some case management, they would hook them up with services, and they had a program that to made sure that they checked in on these people, that they were taking their meds and making sure that their viral load got to zero and stayed at zero. You know, his whole idea was stop the spread of it and let's stop treating everybody who has HIV like a victim and get them back into normal life. It is kind of ironic that Gary was one of the first people to be infected with HIV. He'd been positive for 37 years, and he'd been healthy the entire time. He lived through the first pandemic, and it was the second pandemic that killed him. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. The list of people we wanted to honor was long, and we had to make some tough choices to put together this show. If there's an important activist or organizer you know of who passed away in 2020, let us know on our Making Contact Facebook page. 
The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Salima Hamarani, Lisa Rudman, Sonia Green, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Andrew Stelzer. We close today's show with the words of a legendary figure in the struggle for civil and human rights who passed away this year, Georgia State Representative John Lewis. The scars and stains of racism still remain deeply embedded in American society. Whether it is stop and frisk in New York or injustice in a Trayvon Martin case in Florida. The mass incarceration of millions of Americans, immigrants hiding in fear in the shadow of our society, unemployment, homelessness, poverty, hunger, or the renewed struggle for voting rights. So I said to each one of us today, we must never ever give up. We must never ever give in. We must keep the faith and keep our eyes on the prize.